From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, my name is Tamim Ansori. I am the author of West of Kabul, East of New York, uh, which is a memoir about my bicultural life stretched across the gap from Afghanistan to the United States. My father was one of the first 10 or 12 Afghans to be sent to the United States as a student. He met my mother in Chicago. She married him and became the first American woman to marry an Afghan and go back to Afghanistan and live there as an Afghan. So my sister and I were the first uh, actual Afghan-Americans, and uh, we both grew up in Afghanistan. And then when I was 16, I came here, and I spent the rest of my life in the United States until 2003, I think it was, when the Taliban were ousted, and I returned to Afghanistan for the first time in 38 years. So uh, my memoir is... um, Uh, a book which is divided into three parts, and the first part is about my childhood growing up in Afghanistan. The second part is about a trip I took in 1980 uh, when I had been living in the United States for some years, and I decided to go back and tour through the Islamic world, and it happened that I I undertook that trip just when uh, uh, the American embassy officials were taken hostage in Iran. and then the, the, the third part is about coming back to the United States and living here, and the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and a lot of my Afghan relatives and many other Afghans came to the United States. So it's about Afghanistan coming here and finding me once again in the United States. The book is uh, this year's selection uh, for the One City, One Book program of San Francisco. This is a program that... Uh, mirrors the kind of thing that colleges and universities have been doing for a while, which is the common freshman reading program. They give uh, one book selection, and all the freshmen coming in read that, and so that when they arrive on campus, they have sort of a point of reference and something to talk about, and they have the uh, book group discussions and so on. And uh, a few years ago, a librarian in Seattle thought, wouldn't it be cool if a whole city did this, have a one city, one book program, and then in a certain period of time, this book will be in all the bookshops and be promoted and in the libraries, and uh, many people in the city will have this one thing to, uh, to engage on. It'll be like a citywide book club. So this year, I am honored to say that uh, west of Kabul, east of New York, is the San Francisco One City, One Book pick. Um, I want to read one chapter from this book. Um, This is uh, a chapter that comes in the third part of my book. It's about uh, coming back to America and some of the things that happened there. This chapter is called The Rebel Leader. After I came back from the Islamic world, I fell in with a bunch of Afghans in Berkeley. I had met them shortly after moving to San Francisco, but I hadn't hung out with them much because I'd felt sort of awkward among them. I'd felt I didn't know all the secret handshakes of Afghan culture anymore. They shared references to times and places I had left behind. Often, I didn't get their jokes. My Farsi wasn't that good. But after I came back, something changed. I think the Soviet invasion drew us together. They had all come over on student visas, never meaning to stay. The invasion clanged the gate shut on them, and now they were trapped in America. I had never intended to go back, but now that I couldn't, it affected me. It was as if some Afghan self inside me woke up and realized it didn't want to die. One day, one of the Berkeley Afghans came to me and said, We have to form a committee. His name was Aziz Mujadidi, and he was one of my closest buddies at this time. 
a big, handsome, athletic fellow with shiny black hair and warm, dark eyes. Aziz loved art and painted big canvases filled with surrealistic images. Any time he got excited, which was every few minutes, he stumbled all over his tongue trying to explain deep thoughts which no one ever got because language was not his strong suit. What kind of committee? Let's raise money to help the refugees in Pakistan. He had my attention. Letters from my father were still arriving regularly, and they brought only good news, but that was bad news, because it meant he was writing for the censors. For the most part, he just listed the names of relatives who were fine and who sent salams. In other news, meat was always plentiful in the bazaars, coal was inexpensive, and the weather was always unseasonably good. But one day in mid-1980, an anonymous letter hit my mailbox, warning me in block lettering not to come back to Afghanistan. Everyone is being arrested here. If they catch you listening to BBC, you go to jail. They're using torture. After you read this letter, destroy it and don't mention it to anyone. I never found out who had sent that letter. Count me in, I told Aziz. We called ourselves the Afghan Refugee Aid Committee, Iraq. There were eight of us at the outset. We pooled our money to hire a lawyer and got ourselves incorporated as a non-profit organization. We opened a bank account. I wrote some fundraising letters, designed stationery, created leaflets. We didn't raise much money, just a few donations from rich people whom I knew through the Asia Foundation, as well as a smattering of cash Aziz managed to squeeze out of other Afghans. But man, it felt good to use my crude publishing skills and American savvy to help Afghans. It helped alleviate the guilt I felt over being safe and sound in America. And it gave me a vehicle for spending time with my Afghan pals. We had so much emotion to share about the old country, anger mostly, and anxiety, and sadness. We watched the news and moaned about events, drank beer and listened to tapes of Ahmad Zoyer, the Elvis Presley of Afghanistan. I formed a close attachment to Akbar and Asghar Nauruz, whose names meant big and little, although they were pretty much the same size, actually. In fact, they were fraternal twins. I made friends with Zalmay Shaghossi, a cheerful man whose manners were so smooth they falsely made him seem false. I got to know Salik and Wafi and several others. Often the guys would spout poetry spontaneously. They all seemed to know hundreds of couplets by heart. And it didn't matter that I couldn't keep up. I can still close my eyes and see Akbar delivering a free verse poem in Farsi with melancholy passion. In this dark night, crickets are lamenting, O moon, O great moon. But soon trouble arose. It turned out we were not the only committee raising funds for Afghan refugees. Another group had formed, and they were twice our size. They demanded that we fold our operations and join them. Aziz and Zalmay stoutly warned them to shut down their committee and join us. Why can't we both exist? I asked. We cannot both represent the Afghan community. We'll recruit new members. Let them see our strength. Aziz dragged two recruits to our next meeting, but they immediately raised complaints. Why had we formed the committee without them? 
Now all the good ministries are gone, they bellyached. Ministries, I said. It turned out they had examined our Articles of Incorporation, in which, conforming to legal necessity, we had listed some of ourselves as officers. They saw that Aziz had, quote-unquote, appointed himself president. My title of vice president translated to them as prime minister. And they correlated treasurer and secretary to minister of finance and ministry of foreign affairs. I pleaded that we were not setting up a government in exile to replace the puppet government the Soviets had installed in Kabul. We were just trying to raise some money for refugees. But my own Iraq compatriots acted shamefaced and evasive, and I could see that the charges of personal ambition and nepotism had struck home. To placate the new guys, we offered them two plum portfolios, the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Defense, which they grabbed. But how will we reward further recruits, I wondered. Will we not run out of government posts? Are we lunatics? Just how many people are we competing for? At least 30, I was told. Wow, you mean there are 30 Afghans here besides us? Who are they all? Not 30 Afghans, 30 Afghan families. One day I got a call from a stranger who was concerned about the growing tension between our two committees. We are inviting all the major Afghan leaders of the Bay Area to sit down together and achieve unity. Will you honor us? I had to laugh. Me, an Afghan leader, you must be mixing me up with someone else. I haven't seen Afghanistan in 17 years. He scoffed at my modesty. You are an Ansori. At the Unity Council, I discovered that the older brother of our own Zalmay Shaghossi headed the other group. This struggle for legitimacy really came down to a rivalry between siblings. Eventually, we did combine our two committees, but only because of an outside threat. Another committee was forming among the Afghans of Fremont, a suburb south of Oakland, and it was bigger than both of us. Sixty families. As the Afghan proverb says, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousins, we and our cousins against invaders. And who knew but that even bigger groups might not form. The community was growing as the war in Afghanistan blazed and spread. Already some half a million refugees were camped along the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Virtually all of them came from rural villages and nearly all were women and children. Their men, the so-called Mujahideen or holy warriors, were inside the country fighting. Around the world in that era, war was driving whole families from their homes. But in Afghanistan, the refugee crisis had a terrible added dimension because only the women and children of each family were escaping to Pakistan, the war was fracturing families on a massive scale. Children were growing up without fathers. Their mothers, village women inculcated from infancy to feel shame when seen by strangers, now had to live in massive tent cities without the protection of compound walls, exposed to just any passerby. Boys grew up in the shadow of what they must have felt to be their mother's violation and shame. This was the unwholesome soil in which the Taliban eventually sprouted. The refugees who made it to the United States 
came as whole families, but they were mostly urban Afghans from the upper bureaucratic class, the country's westernized veneer, and they brought with them chilling tales. A schoolgirl named Noid told me about the day she and her classmates had demonstrated against the Soviets. They were marching in the streets shouting, Allahu Akbar, God is great, when the communist government sent jets to strafe them. Bullets felled the girl marching next to Noid, and the flag she had been carrying fell from her hands, but Noid snatched it up and kept going. Here in America, her story got out to the media, and she was briefly canonized as the Afghan Joan of Arc. She even got a photo op with President Reagan. Then there was Siddiq, who had lived behind the notorious Polikhomri prison and could never get a good night's sleep, he said, because of the executions. These took place between midnight and dawn, not in rapid succession but intermittently so that it got on your nerves. Bang, someone died. Silence. You waited. Bang, someone else died. Interval. Bang. You didn't know who was being killed or why, only that it was happening every night. An older woman, one of Aziz's relatives, I think, told me that the communists routinely extracted information from political activists by threatening to bury one of their relatives alive before their eyes. They made the threat credible by carrying through on it from time to time and then setting the shocked witnesses free to spread their tales. They say the soil seems to keep moving for hours, she reported. Fact or rumor? I don't know. But imagine how stories like that affected Afghans who had loved ones in that country. Think of that phrase, the soil seems to keep moving for hours. Just as the committee struggles were peaking, Aziz called me. He had exciting news. Sobatoloi Mujadidi is in Florida. We can bring him here if we pay for his hotel and his airfare. <clears throat> Sobatoloi Mujadidi, rebel warrior. His credentials came from having protested Soviet influence in Kabul 20 years before there was any. He'd even done prison time in the 1950s, Aziz told me, for demonstrating too loudly against the state visit by Khrushchev. Now he led one of the seven main rebel parties based in Pakistan. His last name suggested to me that he and Aziz were related in some way. I felt qualms. Aziz, we're supposed to use our money to help refugees, not rebel leaders. Or our own relatives, I thought. But we use our money to make pamphlets, to host dinners. That's called fundraising. This will be fundraising. He comes with his robe stained in the blood of martyrs. Who will not flock to see him? He had a point. A speech by a rebel warrior straight from the smoking battlefields of Afghanistan. By God, what a fundraising opportunity. The more I thought about it, the more Aziz's excitement infected me. So we rented California Hall, which seats hundreds of people. Akbar and I designed and printed leaflets and posters, and we went around on weekends, stapling them to telephone poles and posting them in laundromats. We bought round-trip plane tickets for the rebel leader and two of his aides. It cost more than we had in our Iraq account. No matter. We scraped up the difference from our own pockets. Zalmay filched money out of a family fund earmarked for rescuing more of his relatives from Afghanistan. 
When the day came, a bunch of us went to the airport to meet the man. A good-sized crowd of Afghans had already gathered at the gate, rippling with excitement. He came off the plane wearing a long gray gabardine overcoat. His pinched little spectacles, his wispy white beard, and his puckered features gave him the look of a querulous, underpaid clerk. As he advanced through the sea of Afghans, everyone near him bowed at the waist, flexed their knees, and dropped their heads, assuming postures of deference. Sobratullah extended his hand, and anyone near enough grasped it and kissed it. He came past me, and what could I do? Though it felt awkward and unnatural, I knelt like the others and kissed his hand. Aziz and the boys drove him to the Ramada Inn while I went to California Hall and attended to last-minute arrangements, checking the sound system, adjusting the lights, putting out literature, setting up the sidewalk sandwich board that announced, Afghan rebel leader tonight, $10, sliding scale. I was hoping the hall would be big enough. Aziz told me busloads of Afghans were on their way up from Los Angeles, and the Afghan community in the Bay Area certainly numbered in the hundreds now, counting the Fremont souls. But half an hour before the great man arrived, a number of Afghans came to me with worried faces. On the door, they fussed anxiously. It says, ten dollars? I gulped. Is it too much? Are you crazy? It is too little. You're telling the world our leader is worth ten dollars. It's humiliating. It's an insult to our dignity as Afghans. I felt my stomach clenching. How much should we be charging? Charging? What kind of host charges his guests? We can't charge money. We must welcome the multitudes, and when they leave, it should be us giving them gifts. I dismissed this point of view, but more Afghans came to me with the same complaint. Finally, my fellow Iraq members bowed to the majority, outvoted me, and scratched the charge. Our fundraising event had turned into an example of free speech. The hour was getting late, and the hall still looked pretty empty. Where are the hordes of Afghans from Los Angeles? Shouldn't they be here by now? I asked. Oh, they're not coming, one of the twins told me diffidently. We offended them. How on earth? We invited Sobratullah without consulting them. They wanted to co-host his speech. What about the hordes of Bay Area Afghans? Well, the Fremont Afghans are boycotting the speech. Boycotting? Why? So they explained it to me. To the Fremont Afghans, this looked like a naked power grab. One member of the Mujahidi family presenting another Mujahidi to the American public, as if no one was fighting the Soviets except the Mujahidis. So no Afghans are coming, and we're not charging money? Never mind. It's better that Afghans don't take up seats. We want to save room for Americans. They're the ones we're trying to reach. The first Americans to arrive were two men in bulky olive aviator jackets and berets. I recognized the type, hardcore lefties. In fact, they belonged to the Revolutionary Communist Party, a tiny cadre of Marxist bullies who hung around the 24th Street BART station preaching Marxism through static jangled bullhorns at uncaring crowds of rush hour commuters. They found seats just behind me, and I heard them plotting how to ambush Mujahideen with tough questions. 
If he mentions the third five-year plan, let's bring up the 1978 grain output from the Lenin Cooperative Farm. Ha! And then let's hit him with Comrade Dobronsky's statement about the global solidarity of the working class. Ha ha! Stuff like that. My mood sank. Since we weren't charging for seats, we were praying for donors. But if the few Americans who came were lefties bent on disruption... Finally, Sobratullah arrived, surrounded by a constellation of reverent Mujadidis and friends of Mujadidis. He mounted the stage and sat on the rickety chair under the spotlight, blinking and peering into the crowd. The mic was set too high, so one of our committee people hurried on stage to pull it down. I could hear the RCP duo behind me muttering, scribbling, plotting. Then Sobratullah began to speak. That high-pitched, hectoring voice could scarcely be imagined inspiring warriors to go into battle. He gave a short speech. A very short speech. Well, to be blunt, it was extremely short. It lasted less than a minute, I think. Essentially, he said, the Russians are your enemy, the Russians are my enemy. You Americans want to kill Russians? I kill Russians. Give me money and weapons so I can kill more Russians. Thank you. Any questions? Behind me, the muttering and scribbling stopped. Here, finally, was an upside to our fundraiser. Mujadidi had cold-cocked the RCP men. They had no idea how to deploy their intellectual artillery against this. No one asked any questions. Our event was over. We'd spent $1,000, mostly out of pocket, borrowed in part from the Shagossi Family Refugee Fund, and had nothing to show for it. Aziz accompanied me out the door. Well, he beamed. That went very well, eh? Aziz was going to the Ramada Inn now because the rebel leader had agreed to meet with anyone who wanted to pay court. I was depressed, but I tagged along. To my surprise, his hotel room was already so jammed the crowd bulged into the hall. Already he had a bigger audience here than he'd had for his speech. And as some people left, more kept arriving. In the course of the evening, I'd estimate that 200 people filtered through. I watched him work the crowd, and my whole impression of the man changed. During his speech, he had looked like such a small man on such a big stage. Here in the hotel room, what struck me was the sheer size of him. And today, I have no idea if he is actually big, small, or in between. It's not that he suddenly looked like a warrior but the very traits that had diminished him in the American setting seemed to magnify him here. On that stage, he had looked like a clerk, here like a cleric. There, pinched and querulous, here, studious and careworn. As he interacted with the Afghans, he emanated crackling intensity. His attention and presence never flagged or broke, and every interaction seemed intensely personal. Oh, you're so-and-so. Whatever happened to your uncle's goat, the one that kept damaging his hollyhocks? He always had a name or two and some personal anecdote or reference to show that he wasn't just faking it. Sometimes he had to ask a few questions to establish the connection. Your father is Abdul Farooq, ah, in the ministry of... Oh, any relationship to General Nur Ali Khan? Why, I know him well. Every person he spoke to ended up feeling known and important. I was hoping he wouldn't notice me. I hated to disrupt his well-oiled social machinery. What could he possibly know about me? 
and if he knew anything, what could this conservative cleric bestow on me, a secularized, beer-swilling sinner, except disapproval? Already, defensive, indignant thoughts were zipping through my brain. Well, hoity-toity, you too, Mr. Mullah, where do you come off judging me? I have my principles, so you can just get your sharia out of my face, thank you. Then his gaze settled upon me. Someone murmured my name to him, and amazingly his face lit up with genuine pleasure. Wah, the son of Mira Monodini Ansori? Ah, your father and I have shared many a good laugh. He has a wonderful sense of humor. Some of his poems, you know, are quite ribald. His eyes twinkled in fond memory. Evidently, ribald was okay with him. I liked that. His attention moved on, but he left me smiling. Hey, this wasn't the rigid, sanctimonious stick I'd expected, but a regular guy, pretty decent fellow, really. How interesting that my father made him laugh, with ribald jokes, no less. That was Daddy, all right, and my heart glowed with affection for my warm and humorous father. After a while, I realized he had worked me just as expertly as he had the others, but I didn't mind. I remained impressed. In a flash, he had identified my family, scoped me out, figured out how to disarm my suspicions, and made our connection personal, with subtlety and grace. Also, clearly, he really did know my father. Over the next few hours, I saw him do the same thing flawlessly with at least a hundred more people. He answered questions, too. One American had somehow found his way into the hotel room that night, a big gangly geek of a man called Weber. He could tell Mujadidi was a religious figure, but he misinterpreted what that meant and asked the dumbest possible question. Sir, do you believe in magic? Is telepathy possible? Mujadidi gave the question due consideration and a wry answer. Magic is what we call any outcome whose technique is unknown to us. At one time, if you could talk in your own voice with someone hundreds of miles away, it would have been called magic. But now we call it the telephone. So yes, I think telepathy is possible. Anything is possible, God willing, if the technique for it is discovered. After the communist fell in 1992, Subratuloy Mujadidi was the first rebel leader to serve as president of Afghanistan. But he lasted only a year or so. The political skills that got him there couldn't keep him there. He failed, I think, for the same reason that our San Francisco committees failed. No one in Kabul cared about governing as a goal of government, just as no one in Iraq cared about fundraising as a goal of a fundraising committee. What people really cared about was who would bow to whom. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.